Welcome to the Fitness Candor Podcast. Your host, Eric Feigl, will be bringing you the truth about exercise and the fitness industry. You'll hear from fitness professionals, exercise science professors and researchers, fitness industry entrepreneurs and leaders, as well as people who simply love to talk shop. Stick around after the show to learn how you can get your topic in an upcoming episode. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Fitness Canter Podcast. As always, I am your host, Eric Feigl, and I'm joined today by Nikki Nab-Levy. She is part of the dynamic duo who hosts the Moving Well podcast, her and uh, her co-host, Janet Sunderland. Uh, Nikki holds her bachelor's in exercise science as well as a bachelor's in journalism and uh, is also a certified Pilates teacher, licensed massage therapist, uh, the list goes on. She's probably an astronaut, and I don't even know about it. She's got uh, a lot of experience in exercise science, um, the fitness field, about 10 years. Um, we should have a lot in common, a lot to talk about. Her specialty is in uh, Pilates. So we're going to kind of do a little little cross-section here of, of strength in Pilates. I know a lot of my guests have heard me talk a lot about just one side of things, so it's going to be really good to get the uh, the other side of the spectrum. So, Nikki, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, this should be fun. I think so. Yeah. I mean, our last conversation before we jumped on here was pretty entertaining. We probably should have just recorded that one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, fill in some blanks for us here. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do, and who you are. Uh, sure. So... Let's see. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, my background is primarily in Pilates, and right now, or most currently, I'd say I specialize in post-rehab work and injury pre uh, prevention, and then that can kind of carry into the performance side. Like, I have worked with a couple of professional athletes and stuff, but the way that I got started was, uh, like many people, uh, on the group fitness side of things. So, I started taking group fitness classes when I was, like, 16, um, when I was, like, 18 and about to go off to college. Uh, the instructors there, because I'd kind of gotten into like the typical aerobics, step aerobics, all that stuff. And I was taking Pilates sort of as a side thing. And the Matt Pilates teacher at my gym was like, oh, you're really good at this. Uh, you should go do a certification. And I was like, okay. And I went and took like one of those little two day things. And I remember it because I was terrified. Like I was the youngest person in the room. We had to take a little test at the end where you had to fill out a muscle man. And I was kind of like worried about getting quadriceps group wrong. Like, like it was a whole thing, right. which is really funny now uh, in, in retrospect, but long story short, I wasn't really sure I was going to do anything with that. And I went off to college and then my college uh, in Ohio was on a weird quarter system. So we had a six week break. And so when I went back home for those six weeks, I went back to like the gym that I'd been like living in. And one of the Pilates instructors there had like up and run off to Jamaica with a bunch of company money. Oh, and yeah. And they nice, were like, nice <laughs> right. <laughs> because apparently the only way to make money in fitness is to steal it. Right. Uh, right, right, right. Of course. of course. Right. But basically I had no experience. I was like 19 years old and they were like, um, you're certified. Right. I was like, yes, but I've never taught. And they were like, cool. Uh, you want to teach like eight classes a week? Here you go. Have fun. <laughs> Just thrown into the fire, huh? Yeah. Exactly. But turns out I like talking. So that went pretty well. And then when I got back to college, I was like, 
I think I want to do an exercise science degree. And I mean, it's kind of like the rest is history, except I was such a group fitness addict. By the time I got out of college, I was in chronic pain. And so that's what kind of set me on this path of sort of figuring out why are so many fitness professionals and highly active people in pain all the time? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that, it's, and it's funny because like you, if you look back, I mean, what we're doing, we're not necessarily, group exercise might be a little different, but not all of us are necessarily working out with uh, the people that we work with, but mm -hmm. it's movement all day long, right? So it's, it's kind of a maintenance issue too. It absolutely is. And it's one of those things where it's not that what we're doing or what we're teaching is bad or it's a bad no. model. It's no. an incomplete model. And so when you look at a situation where there's so many people who care so much about something and yet everyone's like hobbling around or like complaining about like, oh, my foot, oh, my elbow, oh, I'm going to like joking about how they're going to be in a wheelchair by the time they're 50, that kind of thing. You have to go, I wonder if we've sort of just missed a little part of this whole um, model that maybe we could benefit from. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot that goes into it too. And even if you talk to people who have been exercising for, you know, 10, 20, 30 plus years, they, they'll even tell you how they've adapted their training over time. Right. And you can kind of see like the, the ebb and flow of maybe hard training or they went a different route and did, um, uh, let's say like cycling or something, or they took time off from weightlifting and they went to gymnastic. You can kind of see this ebb and flow, but the, the injuries never really go away. So exactly. Yeah. And it's so one of, sorry to interrupt you there. No, 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 you're good. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it's just one of those things where, uh, you almost, you don't know what you don't know. And so I think that's part of why sort of the injuries persist for a lot of us. Like there's certain things that once you understand how some things work that you go, oh, that's why that hurt. Oh, that's why that happened. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's how I set myself up for an issue here. But if you don't know it and you're just bouncing around kind of doing whatever workout you're doing or kind of pursuing the latest and greatest, hardest thing, mm -hmm. you almost think that pain is an inevitable side, of, side effect of fitness as opposed to being sort of something that's manifesting from what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's where that stupid saying, no pain, no gain is, is. I know. Yeah. We, I think we talked about that too. And it's just so frustrating because you still, you, I think I hear more, more on the client side, say it, and maybe some is a joke, like, ha ha, no pain, no gain. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I wish people didn't think like that. Cause then it just leads to poor technique. And then that can, that leads to injury also. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So actually that's kind of a good segue because you know, it's, from my perspective, I, I focus more on the strength side and you're more uh, Pilates slash like rehab, prehab side. And one thing we discussed that is, is kind of a, I think should be more in the forefront is kind of bridging the gaps, not just between those two industries, but almost all of fitness. And I say almost because there's a couple of things that I would definitely leave out, but um, <laughs> I don't want to get into that stuff, but the, uh, what what do you think is missing in the big scheme of things? And how do you think as professionals, we can start to bridge those gaps and become more of a, a community, if you will? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I mean, in my opinion, the thing that I see missing when I walk through a gym, when I take a class, when I look at Instagram videos, however you want to put it, is that most of us don't have an underlying uh, level of stability meaning that we're not entirely sure where our joints are supposed to sit in space, 
or how our joints are supposed to move. And if you can't, and I'll give a more specific example for sure, but if you can't sort of figure out sort of how things are supposed to move biomechanically unloaded, then when you add intensity and load, you basically end up compressing things and overusing some muscles and some joints and underusing others. Mm -hmm. And pretty much you get a what ends up being from a pain science perspective, a loss of proprioception or body awareness. Right. And what we know now is the same pathways that your brain kind of takes to send you proprioception are the same pathways it takes to send pain. So it's almost like that signal gets scrambled for people. And that's what creates that kind of revolving door feedback loop of constant pain when you do something. Yeah. And that makes sense too, because if, if you're, if you're training, if you're training your body improperly, even if you don't have pain, you're setting yourself up for, for failure in the long term. And, and that's when people get into, um, I think the habits of that, that, you know, the, the whole term, no pain, no gain. I mean, that's, <laughs> it can be, that can be kind of outside the realm of, you know, that, that good burn when you get like that last rep in versus, um, you know, that nagging injury that you have in your elbow and you're not really sure why. Right. I mean, that's a big piece of it is a lot of us don't understand how to feel our bodies. And those of us who are moving our bodies, many of us who think we understand and I I'm, used to be one of those people, we kind of end up in this all or nothing approach. And the thing about like, so depending on how you teach Pilates, there's a lot of opinions about this that I won't get into because that's oh, its true. own set of drama. But yeah. from my perspective in teaching Pilates and working with people is I'm sort of looking for a certain level of nuanced movement, which is like, I'm going, okay, can you move your spine kind of through all of its segments in an appropriate amount? Or conversely, is all of your extension happening from your low back and is all of your flexion happening from your upper back? Because that's not going to feel so good when you start adding load to it, or even when you've had to sit in a desk for a long period of time. But sort of, for example, feeling like, thoracic upper back mobility that's mm -hmm. like this really nuanced thing like you're not going to get someone to sweat and burn um calories doing a book opener like it's just not very sexy right you know it's kind of it's kind of quote unquote boring it's nuanced and it's the same thing if like someone you know has neck pain or neck tension when they're doing lifts and you watch them move and you see their shoulder displaces anteriorly every single time like that's someone who probably needs more rotator cuff but again, if you're that person who's over, who's doing an overhead press of 100 pounds, when you train your rotator cuff, you're doing like reps of 15, 20, several sets with like the lightest band possible. And it's right. It, you, you're barely going to feel it because it's, it's a stabilizer. It whispers. They're not meant to like go brute force contraction like a quad or like glute max or something. So you kind of have to shift about what your focus is. And so many people think for workouts like, oh, it's the no pain, no gain thing. It's like hit it hard, make it burn, sweat, sweat, sweat. And it's like, that's great. There's a time and a place for that. But if you don't do all these little nuanced things, you might end up feeling like crap when you do those big hard things. Yeah. And it's funny too, because when you do see somebody who's uh, you know, for instance, that, you know, doing a, a deadlift incorrectly or something like that. And you, I mean, number one thing is the aspect of, you know, how heavy are they going? That's what, one thing I like to, to look at right away. And if you suggest backing off the weight to someone, it's almost like a punishment to that person. Oh, yeah. And so, and so the exact same thing, if you're doing something for that rotator cuff or, you know, in any kind of like sub scap area, even it's, it's these, you know, like TYs and I's with dumbbells you know, they're, they're such, they're so small and controlled movements. Yeah. It's boring and it's not fun, but in the long term, when you have like healthy sh shoulders, when you're 65, you know, that's, that's going to be huge. 
but how do we scale back and teach people to become more aware? You know, how, how you mentioned like the having that uh, proprioceptive um, uh, overlying blanket of being aware of how they move and how do you, how do you teach someone that? Yeah. And this is where it gets funny because it goes back to, and I, so I, I have, I have a phrase, I have many phrases, but one of them is you have to earn the, you have to earn the right to do the crazy shit. And that's by doing the boring <laughs> shit. Right. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Right. Because if you, if you, if you do the crazy shit and you don't do the boring shit, then you're just going to be in the revolving door between the PT and the gym, which like it's, it's not fun. It sucks. Yeah, you're stuck. You're stuck. Right. Right. And, and so for a lot of the time, let's just go with the rotator cuff example. Like people go, they go, my rotator cuff is fine. Like I can bang out push-ups all day long. And I go, cool. How's it feel when you do push-ups? Oh no. Okay. Show me some push-ups. And they do some push-ups and they do them really, really fast and their shoulders round forward and they collapse and they're, you know, through their rib cage and their scapula wing. And they're out to the forward. side. And, yeah. Right. And, and I'm like, what'd you feel? And they pause and they're breathing real heavy and they're like, nothing. And I'm like, cool. Can you do that same push-up slow? And then they do it slow and they collapse. They're like, that's really hard. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, we're getting somewhere. Can you do another one really slow? And they're like, oh, my wrist kind of hurts, for example. And I'm like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. You're starting to notice what you feel. So a lot of the time, what, what I end up doing with people, I don't know if it's reverse psychology or what, but the first thing I do is just draw awareness to their experience of whatever they're already doing, because at least then we can have a conversation that makes sense. Because if I just look at their push-up as they go really fast and I go, you know, you need some rotator cuff, they, they don't care. But if I can point out that if they strengthen their rotator cuff, it might yep. make their push-up feel easier or their wrist hurt less. Right. Now they're going to listen. Right. No, that, that's um, you. That's you. That, that ed, well, how much education do you throw in behind that? Like, what, what does that look like in terms of, of setting that up for somebody? Uh, you know, I mean, it always depends on the client, of course. But the first sure. thing I do is if we go with the push up example, because so many people have less than beautiful push ups. And I, I thought I, it turns out it took me 10 years to learn how to do a push up correctly. But for a really long time, I thought I had a good push up and I didn't. <laughs> that was humbling. Uh, <laughs> but it's one of those things where I go, okay, well, can you do this push up without, you know, feeling your shoulder blades wing? Nope. Okay. If I put you against a wall, so you're upright. So now we've taken out 90% of the load. Can you do it here? Maybe. So that's when I go, okay, do you feel this, this, and this? And then I'll go, I'll go from a global movement, like a push up, to a local movement. So I might, because shoulders are so impacted by, um, you know, your uh, thoracic mobility, I might have them do a little bit of thoracic rotation and or like gentle extension. I'll have them work right. their rotator cuff so they can feel it. I'll have them do like some wall slides with their hands or a foam roller against the wall and sort of have them feel like upward rotation and those shoulder stabilizers or maybe like some little like, um, I don't know, I think they're called serratus pushups sometimes or sternum drops, that kind of thing. I know what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. And then we'll go back to the push-up, and I'll go, okay, now that you've warmed these things up, A, just see if that push-up feels easier or better. It usually does. And now B, now you've got a little bit of awareness around this. See if you can sort of apply what you felt with these like really gentle things to this bigger movement. That makes total sense. Yeah. You, I mean, it's like a, you almost have to reverse engineer the entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, that's something that people hate doing and they, I mean, not everybody, but some people, you know, what I like to tell people uh, going along with that, especially like that internal external rotation is 
because I, I mean, again, if they go from like a ballistic push-up movement and you try to show them how to do like a TY and I movement, <laughs> it's you, you'll get that swinging, you'll get that momentum. And I always like to tell people, you know, you're, this is about increasing strength, not demonstra- demonstrating strength. Like they're two totally different aspects. And when you're actually doing strength training, you should be really focused on the form, the smoothness of it, and not just strength training. Like we don't have to imply it just to that, but in all these movements, it's not about just getting through the motion and being, boom, I'm done. Like, you know, clean plate club. It's not like that. <laughs> you got to like scale it back and really think about what you're doing and, and know that during, during the actual uh, movement, it's not, that's not where everything comes in. That, all the benefits of it come in later during your rest and everything else. But breaking through to some people, that's, uh, it takes repetition, repetition, repetition. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, there's different strategies for it. I think the other thing that people don't realize is that if you're going to, so again, I'm, I'm, we all have different languages when we talk about this, but like, so I, I tend to talk about things as like local stabilizers versus global mobilizers yeah, and basically, right. So stabilizers, little tiny posture muscles, AKA rotator cuff, um, you know, global mobilizers, like your lat. So, so people tend to think like, oh, with all exercises and movements, because again, if you don't explain this to them, they really genuinely think you've, you've put them in the corner and time out and taken away the candy, like bigger, harder, faster, stronger, heavier weight, more better. But the, the reality is, is stabilizers, and this is part of why you don't sweat training your stabilizers or targeting them, is they respond to high rep, low load, low tone. And in the case of say a rotator cuff, you don't actually want to hypertrophy that sucker because you only have millimeters of space in your shoulder joint. And if you do that, you're actually going to create impingement. So you're actually going to create a problem if you think you're going to use like a 10 pound weight on your rotator cuff. Yeah. And you see, and again, you see people using like the momentum with that. Oh yeah. You know, they, they, they'll do like a super heavy shoulder press or bench press or something like that. And then they'll walk over and they'll throw 20 pounds on or, or, you know, depending on the exercise equipment, a super heavy load and they'll do, you know, five sets of 10. And you just see, you just see the impingement coming. <laughs> and you, and we wonder why most of the time, you know, like the build, quote unquote, the big uh, bodybuilder types are, are just anteriorly rotated like crazy. I mean, those guys don't even need half of it. <laughs> right. And again, we don't, we, we don't know what we don't know, but it's one of those things where it's, it's beneficial to think about if you don't want to think in terms of muscles, because I get that, especially when I'm working with clients, right? I don't always use muscles. In fact, the more I teach, the less I use muscles. I tend to talk more about joint placement. So I'll talk about, okay, like your shoulder likes to sit, like, let's say it's kind of forward and down. How does it feel to do this same movement if you kind of let it go back and say up, if they're missing like upward rotation? And a lot of the time people discover they're really strong, for example, forward and down. They are not so strong when you take them back and up and they go, oh, that's really hard. And I go, yeah, it it is. It's like mentally hard. But I also go, does your neck feel better when you do it that way or your shoulder, again, your area of interest? And most of the time it does. Yeah. And that goes into training the the movement, not the muscle. Yes. Yeah. So that's, and that's something that um, in the past couple of years that I've really been trying to work on uh, communicating to people, the movement, not the muscle. And, you know, I I think, um, 
I'd like to, I'd like to have you talk a little bit more about how that plays into like stability and mobility. Cause I, I do want to dive in a little bit more into, into talking about something that I think a lot of people deal with on a day-to-day basis. So talk, uh, tell us a little bit more about why it's so important to be movement based. Absolutely. So on the stability mobility spectrum, um, again, lots of people have lots of opinions on this, but to me, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin because a lot of us have immobility in certain joints, like let's say a hip, we don't move really well through that area. And we then also have tension and pain in that same area. And usually it's a combination of if something is too mobile, like let's say you're hypermobile, you have a gymnastics or a dance background or a cheerleading background like I do, a lot of the time like you have some joints that move too much like your lower back and other joints that don't move very well at all like say your hip. And anytime that something is unstable, a lot of the time a few things happen. First, if it's unstable or it moves too much, you will end up um, Basically, if you're locked in one place, you're moving too much in another. But on the flip side, that same area that's got too much movement will often at the same time feel tight. And that's actually your nervous system kind of trying to lock down that area to stop you from going too far out of joint and injuring yourself. So a lot of the time when we think something is tight or it feels immobile, it's often actually unstable. And that's actually why stretching won't make it feel better, but stability you're going in and again, kind of waking up those little muscles, improving proprioception, and then of course, layering strength. So it's functional and you can use it. That's why a lot of the time stability and strength work will sort of improve the stability of an area. And then at the same time, interestingly, even though you didn't necessarily stretch it, also allow you to experience more full range of motion. Yeah, you know what I tell people, and I'm sure maybe you, maybe you uh, have a lot of uh, people who also you work with that deal with this. But they, the stretching comes right away. Let's just let's just take like a calf for example, and you know runners do this nonstop. I mean, first thing that they they feel, um, you know, if they start to get a little achy in the calf or the the knee area, they'll stretch the hell out of their calves. And it's like in every sing, like every half hour they're stretching calves, and all they're doing is sending the exact same signal. To, to that calf or to the knee joint or where, wherever like that person is stretching and they're not giving it plenty of plenty of time to recover and receive those signals. And I think that that kind of plays into it also because think about how many signals we send our body. I mean, all it does is send signals constantly. And if we're all in it in one position, you know, you and this is kind of going to the, the thing that I wanted to, to really dive into is uh, pe- for people with their hips because we're, you know, we're in bed sleeping, probably with our hips bent, we get up, we do our thing in the shower, yada, yada, go back down, sit to eat breakfast, sit to drive to work, you know, and who knows, a high percentage of people are sitting at their desk for, let's say at a nine hour work day. I don't know. What do you think? Seven hours? Oh, easily. And then also, you know, did you then drive your car to work, sit at your desk and then like go to your favorite spin class? Right. Oh, yeah. Then, yeah. Then there's that. And then, and then you go, you get back in your car. You have to drive your car there, drive your car home. You sit and have dinner, sit in front of the TV, and then you're back in bed. So, so like, you know what? Just give me your thoughts on that. So, <laughs> well, well, first, well, let, let's tie this into the runner example because that's an excellent one because a lot of runners also have desk jobs, for example. So, if you are someone who, and I'm not going to knock stretching all the time because stretching has its time and place like everything, but my question is, if you are someone who's stretching, stretching, stretching your calves and it's not getting better, 
My question is, why are your calves so darn tight? Right. And for most of us, it comes back to, funny that, stability. If you don't have stable hips, those little muscles that track in, you know, your hip joints and sort of keep your femurs sitting in the pelvis kind of roughly where you want them, like something else has to work to keep you from falling over. And that's usually your calves. So to go now more to the sitting thing, what happens for a lot of us when we sit is we are locked in one position and our body tends to be really good at, it's, it's good at being efficient. And so if you sit all the time, you are going to be brilliantly efficient at sitting in hip flexion. And when you sit, particularly in hip flexion, usually, usually uh, asymmetrically off to one side, if you tend to cross your legs, like I'm doing right now, because it's right. very much a do as I say, not as I do kind of moment. <laughs> You're going to create some asymmetry in the pelvis. You're going to turn off those deep stabilizers, usually the lateral rotators um, on the sides of your hips that are really, really deep. You'll probably turn off your glute med and you'll probably become kind of like locked short and stiff in the front of your hip, AKA where your hip flexors and your IT band is. And then what happens for a lot of us is when we get up and hopefully, you know, maybe we're active, we do go to the gym. If you just go right into your lift or your hardcore workout, you're body is still sort of shaped like the chair in a really subtle way. You're hanging on to that posture that you've imprinted into your body all day long. And the things that have turned off, AKA your butt, your hip yeah. stabilizers, they're, they're not going to like come back on magically. You have to do something to activate them. So how would a person go about doing that? Right. So if you don't want to have to like devote an hour to it a couple times a week or something, I would say slip these exercises in your warm up because they're great warm up exercises. And it's pretty much just moving the hip. First, I would say move your hip joint in all directions. So if you know you're going to be lifting or running or doing something with your legs, which if you're in the gym, you probably are, unless you're, you know, you're doing like an upper body day or something, but even still, these are good exercises. Like, and I would say like exercises like hand knee rocking where, you know, you're relatively unloaded, you're on your hands and knees, you sit your butt back and forth, um, you kind of rock from hands to knees, trying to keep a fairly neutral pelvis. And that's just going to basically imprint to your nervous system. Oh, look, my leg bone, my femur head can actually glide in my hip socket right? You could do something like on hands and knees, like leg circles. You could do, I mean, there's tons of exercises. You could lie on your back with a resistance band and do leg circles that way with a little bit of like feedback. But basically first just starting by moving the hip in all directions, because odds are it's really good at moving in one direction or only sitting in one place. And then from there, I would layer that in with stability. And most of us are really weak in end range motion. So that could be, you could do a standing exercise where like you lift and lower your foot where you've got it on a chair. So you're, you're working actually end range hip flexion. But the trick to that is to keep neutral pelvis. Cause if you tuck under, you're going right. back into like your great little chair position that we've all mastered so well. Yep. You know, you could do that on your, you could do that face down on your stomach with your hands resting on your forehead, bend one knee and lift the, like, lift the knee like an inch off the ground. So end range hip extension. You could do some clamshells, some monster walks. I mean, none of these exercises are inventing the wheel. You're just no. taking a little bit of extra time to move really slow and thoughtfully trying to keep a really good pelvic position going. Okay, can I actually feel these muscles turn on? Or am I doing these exercises really fast with my legs internally rotated and my knees kind of knocking towards one another, which is how I usually see people doing them in the gym. Yeah. I mean, you see, you see Vegas and valgus movement 
all of the time. And, oh, then yeah. you, and then you automatically, you could, I mean, that person could transfer that to everything they do, right? I mean, it's just a, a repetitive motion. You mentioned glutes a couple times. So th- this, this, this idea of, of uh, glute activation, I hear that a lot lately. Um, you know, glute, gluteus uh, medius and maximus, and everybody knows what those are. How do those incorporate into that stability aspect? Great question. So it's, it's really about muscle timing. So when we, every time we go to take a step, every time we squat or we run any of those things, there's sort of an order of operations in which muscles are supposed to turn on. And, and it's kind of like one, two, three, four, and I'm not going to rattle off the order that they go in, frankly, because I'll probably get it wrong if I don't have a book in front of me. But what happens for, <laughs> being honest here, uh, I know it, but I'm sure I'll mix something up because it's a long list. But what happens for a lot of us is we are, let's just say we're weak in glute mead. We'll go kind of general. Okay. And glute mead is sort of when you're in, it, ha- it has a couple of roles. It does a couple of different actions. But one of the things that it does is when you're going to take a step or you stand on one leg, it's going to be responsible for tracking your knees. So it lands like over your foot instead of letting your knee dive in. So it sort of minimizes internal rotation, if that makes sense oh, to yeah. a degree. Right. And so for a lot of us, we don't have like, we don't have glute mead. We have quite literally lazy butts. And so if you don't have a glute mead, it's not like you're not going to keep walking. Like that's not what happens. What happens is the muscles around it turn on. And for most people, that's going to be the TFL or tensor fasciolata, that little guy up top that attaches into the IT band, which is why so many of us are complaining about our IT band. It's actually just hanging on for dear life, trying to give you stability because you don't have a glute mead. Uh, And then also the other interesting thing is if you're a little delayed in glute mead and sometimes glute max, you're also going to end up getting a lot of QL, quadratus lumborum, that big muscle up top in your back, uh, kind of in your low back, because that's the next biggest muscle that's closest to glute max. So it's actually about muscle timing, which is why I talk so much about the position, the position of your pelvis when you do a stability exercise. It's to see, can I get some of these easily ignored muscles or these ones that are a little bit lazy, they're kind of sipping coconuts on the beach to turn on? And then down train or downgrade some of that hyperactivity I have in some of these other bigger muscles, or not always bigger, but these other more helpful muscles that are sort of trying to do too many jobs at once. Did that answer your question? How would you implement that into something that, you know, if, if that's like specific to someone's goal into, into balancing? Right. So first, let's just talk about what that looks like. Like, how do you know you might have a lazy glute meat on one or both sides? And yes. Right. If you, if you go to, if you go to lift a leg, like let's say you lift your left leg. So you're standing on your right leg. If you go to lift your left leg, you stand your right leg and your right hip kind of drops or swings out to the right side. That means you don't have glute need. Right. Right. And, and, and you'll see it in a lunge. Like if someone's got their right foot forward and their left foot back and they bend and straighten their knees in a lunge and you keep seeing that right hip fall and hike up right, that's no glute mead. So that's, that's an example of what it looks like for someone who's trying to figure out, does my client have this? Do I have this? That's what that's going to kind of manifest as. Uh, and for some people, they might just not be aware. So depending on the client, I might first say, can you keep your hips square in the lunge? If they can't, cool. It's an awareness issue. It's not a glute, it's not a glute mead strength issue. But a lot of people can't. So that's when you've kind of got to back it up and go a little more local. And so I might start them out of gravity, not because it's functional, but just because I want them to feel it. 
And that could be something like, I'm going to pick the world's most boring exercise that everyone does, but a lot of people don't do right, like the clamshell. Yeah. And most, yeah. right? And most people go, oh, yeah, my trainer gave that to me. Oh, yeah, my PT gave that to me. Oh, I warm up with that. And I go, cool. Show me what you're, well, show me what you're doing. And they're usually whipping their leg back and forth real fast, as we've sort of yeah. talked about. And what's interesting is every time they lift their knee, their entire pelvis rolls backwards. So they're, they're doing this cute cheat. They're not actually using their glute med or really their hip muscles to lift their leg. They're just rotating their body backwards. So that's a really big aha that's, moment for some of us. Yeah, that, that actually, I've been seeing that a lot in, in the gym lately. A, lot of, a bunch of people come in with a PT exercises for, for lower body, uh, knee specific exercise. And you see a lot of clamshells. And um, it looks like such an easy movement, but knee placement and heel placement play a big part into that. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of funny that you brought that up. Another thing, and let me get your take on this. So, you know, you got, let's say you have somebody who, who recognizes that they have that imbalance. Um, you know, their, their, their glutes really aren't firing like they should be, and they figure that out. Would, do you recommend that people really just hammer down on strengthening those, extra, those, those muscle groups without, let's say, taking the effort into, you know, making sure you're getting your quad development in, you know, your, your big muscles, really focusing on like leg extensions and lunges and things like that. Cause I see a lot of people spend so much time just cranking down on glutes that it, you know, later on down the road, do you think that can lead to, you know, if they're not developing the, the proper uh, balance on the other side? Yeah, again, a great question. Uh, for me, I'm going to say I, I don't believe in hammering down on one muscle. I believe at looking at the body as a whole as a whole, and looking at an overall pattern because it, it, it's great to go local, right? So, so little things, little unloaded things like a clamshell or um, a monster walk or a side leg lift. I'll just use like the classic three that everyone and their mother talks about. Like those are great exercises. And if you want to do like a little bit of extra um, stability work, focusing on those areas, and then also maybe like a little bit of extra area, extra, uh, extra posterior chain work, like right. cool. But the reality is, is that muscles don't exist in a vacuum. And even like I'm saying glute med, like you can like really target that sucker. But the reality is, is like, I know if you're, I'm really looking for, can you lift your leg with a good bony position, like a good pelvic alignment? I don't actually know if it's your glute med. Like I can't say it's this percentage glute med. Like I don't have an EMG or something attached to you. So it's really when you're moving, if you like, let's say, you know, you have a weak hip, like if you got to go to PT, cool, go to PT, like focus on those exercises. But I would never say, well, just ignore the rest of your body. Just ignore your quads. Don't train these things. I would say, does, does this hip weakness manifest as a particular pattern in your pelvic position when you do leg work? And can you change your pelvic position to be something a little bit more neutral when you do all your normal exercises, like let's say targeting, you know, your quads, because that will actually reinforce hip stability better than just like walking around trying to squeeze your butt all the time, which really isn't all that right. functional. <laughs> Right. Yeah. That, you bring up a good point. You know, I, I always tell people when they, when they ask me, you know, why, why I train them a certain way. And one thing I say right out of the gate is the body moves a, as a unit. So we're going to train it as a unit. Now, this is not how I do things a lot of the times, but you know, people come in back to back days and they, they have a, like a quote unquote split routine. Um, not saying they're building an imbalanced body, 
But I think it's, for me, I find it much more reliable um, to get things to work together, in, in air quotes, work together, if, if they're training their entire body as a unit. And it's paying attention to those, those little nuances, especially like in your hips and in your low back and how things feel as you're going through the motion rather than just trying to get the work done and then moving on to the next thing. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. if you're, if you're going to do a split routine, for example, right? Like, sure, maybe you're just targeting your biceps, but you can focus on how, like, your standing posture in your bicep curl. You can focus on your seated posture in your bicep curl. Like, you don't have to just focus. You, you can still treat your body as a whole unit, even if you're focusing on a specific muscle group. So tell us a little more about what you guys have coming down the pipe. Yeah. So with the podcast, uh, I mean, right now it's, it's sort of funny. I feel like the next month of episodes, depending on when this gets issued is going to be like Pilates month. Like we, we interviewed a bunch of different people, but it's funny. Most of the people we interviewed, we didn't actually talk about Pilates. We talked about like mindset and body image. (laughs) And then we talked about like teaching paradigms. Like, so this idea of again, teaching like movement for the sake of movement instead of giving people a complex over right and wrong, for example. So that's kind of where we've gone with that. And then we sort of flip it on its head and it's going to be like strength training month where we're going to talk with like Courtney, we've interviewed Courtney Thomas about hypertrophy and we're going to kind of go look at more at heavy lifting. So right. (laughs) Love her. Uh, (laughs) She's awesome. But but the, the thing about our podcast is it's sort of I want to say it's not random, but it's, it's having conversations with different people from different niches or niches. I never know how to say that word in the fitness industry, because what you start to find is the human body is the human body. And ultimately the workout you do should be the one that you enjoy that feels good, that keeps you going for the long haul, whatever that might be. And so I'm sort of a fan of having conversations like the one we're having, where we're sort of looking at we're looking at it from two different sides, but it's the information doesn't change. Does that make sense? No, hundred percent does. So that's kind of what we're doing with that. And then uh, on the more personal business side, if you want to call it that I'm working right now on a hip program, uh, but it's still in beta testing and I have no grand details about what it entails other than hopefully it's been built to fill in some of the gaps about the stability piece that people are missing. Cause I don't really care. Like, if you ever do Pilates, but I do think that if you want to keep moving, you do need just some general hip strength. And if you want to keep moving and lifting really big weights, then you need lots of that general hip strength and stability. Nikki, tell people if they have more questions, comments, concerns, where can they reach you? Where can they find the podcast? I'll link all of it in the show notes. But um, for those people who, for some reason, don't read the freaking show notes, where can they get get a hold of you? Uh, so you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, um, just on Instagram, it's just at Nab Levy. And then on Facebook, it's just my name, Nikki Nab Levy, I think Pilates and fitness, or you can shoot me an email at, uh, Nikki at Nab Uh, I have a Twitter. I never use it. I don't really check it. Like so many people <laughs> on your podcast. So like you could tweet me, but you know, in 18 days I might be like, Oh, whoops, someone sent me a message. So probably don't find me on Twitter. Uh, but those are probably the easiest places. <laughs> hint, hint Twitter. If you're listening, cause I, I know you are step your game up, son. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Nikki. I, again, I appreciate taking the time to, uh, to drop some knowledge and I hope people do get a hold of you and learn a little bit more. And then when that hip course that you're, that you're working on, comes out, I'd love to, to get more information to push that out also. 
Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Really love being here. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to suggest a topic or be a part of the show, get in touch with Eric on any social media platform at Eric Feigl or email fcp at ericfeigl.com. Make sure to check back every Tuesday and Thursday for more fitness candor.